How familiar are you with the hidden forces shaping our world? Learn about the spaces you occupy every day with Spaces Podcast, a journey through the design, construction, and the impact of our evolving environments. Hi, I'm Demetrius Lynch, host of Spaces, and I'm thrilled to take you on a ride through the intersections of environment, politics, culture, and economy. Join me and leading industry professionals as we uncover the stories behind the spaces that shape societies, past, present, and future. Today, there's a certain amount of cynicism and and kind of general malaise. Maybe many practices should come together and think about common goals, solving some of the major issues of the day. If I'm not mistaken, am I seeing like a wallpaper that is imitating books in some places? Yeah, I have to say, now we are in peace with this. But (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe now by following the link in the show notes, and let's unravel the secrets of our built world together. Spaces Podcasts. Go beyond the everyday, because spaces shape society. Finances are an essential aspect to understand for any business. Understanding the operating costs and their relationships to other aspects of the business will help you run your business more effectively. If you dream of having an office space, consider the extra overhead expenses of rent, utilities, supplies, etc. In the case of a lean remote company like ours, the primary expenses are limited to salaries, software and technology, marketing, insurance premiums, professional licensing fees, and continuing education and training costs. It's really difficult even just to live comfortably as an architect. You're not really able to be that financially lucrative till like a decade after you've started and you're supposed to just kind of grind away. I mean, it's difficult. As long as that number for that break-even point is staying low under your sales number far enough that we're leaving enough in there to pay your salaries, we're good. We're good. But it's a matter of what strings do we pull in what order because if you pull a string on a sales, you're going to pull a string on the break-even point as well. I'm Jeffrey Lee, and this is Emerging, a Gable Media podcast. This is the podcast where you'll hear what it's really like to start a new architecture firm. So far this season, we've discussed our origin story, explored business models, shared our branding process, and expanded our understanding of legal and risk management concerns. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I encourage you to go back and listen to all episodes to hear the full unfiltered story behind our journey to start an architecture firm. A few months into the business at this point, We were actively tracking our expenses because there was no revenue and only money going out for the organizational components of the business. Having up this business structure thing, we need to be like more diligent about our expense tracking and like who's paid when. So I don't know. I I think we need to build it into our meetings that we almost like start every meeting reviewing where we're at financially and and close out who owes who what and and that way we're all looking at the same thing at the same time and catching up okay i think i owe you money i think you do am i the only one there is also that i don't know i don't know and i think well do you guys want to take a quick look at the yeah it's just like 
Yeah, but here I can share. I was just looking back at what I've been paid so far. Jeff, you gave me one large payment for 186, which I think occurred after we officially registered business. Lexi, you gave me a payment for $34 at some point and then a payment for $20 at some point. And I know I texted you about that $20 thing. Yeah, that's when I was supposed to pay you more. Yeah, it was like, I've no, I just didn't know what it was for. I think that came here. I think that was this one. You paid me 20 and it was supposed to be 26.72, which, you know, again, six bucks, I don't really care, but it's just, we need to track things in an orderly way. Don't, do I owe you more though? Don't I owe you more? Yeah. So then after that, I set up the Google workspace as well as the business registration. Yeah. And then the other day I paid another 10 bucks just for that license certification thing. So I think in total, you'll probably owe me like the balance of this plus 48 plus 78 plus 333. Okay. I'll just do it now. Okay. So the new articles of organization, well, are going to be 225 again. But I think there's an additional fee or something to do it by your card. So we might, it might be a little bit more. Right. Should we just hold off on entering these until we get something? Yeah. Let's just wait till you get charged because there might, it might be extra for fees and stuff. Okay. So we're pretty much good on that. Jeff, I think you owe me 333, but we can just deduct that from whatever I'm going to owe you after this next one. Yeah. Okay. So we're good on expenses. I think in general, we should try to, I know this like sheet got halfway there. We should try to clean this up and make sure everything's working properly or simplify if it comes down to it. We can simplify. I don't know. Let's keep moving. Work, but all this other shit on the side doesn't work. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I know. I, I, and I spent like a few weeks ago, one morning, I spent like two hours trying to figure it out and I, it just, I couldn't get it to work. I know, so, me too. So I maybe just be dumb and we just have to remember to say yes and no and stuff, just, just payments. Yep. Yeah. None of us, you know, come from money. We didn't have much capital to put into this to start. We immediately off the bat, we're trying to figure out how to do this lean, which coincided with COVID. So we had a lot of that infrastructure already set up. We were confident with being able to operate remotely at home without an office with whatever materials and uh, equipment we had. So we tried to do what we could, but still, you know, once you start the business, you've got to start making money. You got to start spending money, not necessarily, <laughs> hopefully making money. Right, right. So there are a lot of concerns, obviously, still to this day. And there's also this aspect of, you know, Chris was the only one that was registered as an architect so he, you know he's his name is the only one that's tied to the business legally and so there's also that concern that you know Lexi and I have to take this you know, get get licensed as quickly as possible get that off his shoulders so a lot of things we're working through as Jeff said we want to operate on a lean budget so I think any financial investment we were splitting three ways because we're all equally invested in this so it took bringing each other together on what we thought was worth spending money on. It led us to kind of, you know, there's tons of great software out there to, you know, manage your time, manage your schedule, manage your to-dos. And I think we just had to kind of really spend more time 
researching what's free so that we were limiting spending money on free software. We went through the exercise of putting together a budget for the first year. And, you know, that included all the software we could buy, all the fancy gear we could purchase. And we put a price tag on it. And then, you know, we arranged it from nice to have or completely necessary. And that that kind of gave us a means of kind of choosing what we were spending money on and agreeing. And if we came across more money or got a project that was paying, then we'd reopen that door to look at additional investments in the company. With the limitations that arise from starting so lean, some of you may be asking, why not save money first, then start the business? Again, no journey is absolute. But for us, there were a number of factors that motivated us to push forward on this path. Crippling student debt, <laughs> living living in two of the most expensive cities in the country. Yes. Not coming from families who can bankroll this. Th- those are kind of three big ones. It's just, it's not even an option. Well, but unpack it though, because I think it's also an important point to make about architecture in general. Like a lot of other professional degrees, you maybe go for a year, maybe two at most to get your master's to become a professional, you know, besides doctors, but like lawyers, etc. And then the return on that investment is usually the return on that investment in terms of your salary and your pay postgraduate, you know, postgraduation is much higher than architecture. But architecture school costs like some, it's some of the highest costs for getting a master. Like, see, it's also in those professions, you can sometimes work while you're in grad school. Yeah. And I remember like day one getting in to our graduate program, they're like, don't even think about it. You're, you're here 100% dedicated to the curriculum. Yeah. So not only do you not have any income coming in during that time, unless you're working in the shops like we all did, but you, you're paying a ton. The time frame that you're there is determined by, you know, what program they, they decide you're best fit for. Mm. Yeah. And we were all signed up to a three-year, I mean, we chose to go to Washington University. I loved that experience, but it was an expensive program and it's one of the longest programs in the country. It's three and a half years. And each semester is like, I don't even know, $35,000, $40,000. It's like an $80,000 year, basically. And think about that over three years. I mean, it's in, it's insane. And then your starting salary when you come out of school and we went to like Los Angeles and New York. So those are some of the highest paid starting salaries, partially because of the cost of living, but they're nothing close to what like a lawyer would make or a doctor would make. You know, I was making like, like something like 55,000 a year. So like, you know, you can do the math. It's not like, <laughs> it's, it's not, there's no room to save. I remember thinking, I think like, my first month at my real job, I think I saved like $25. I'm not joking. After my rent, like how are, how are we going to ever save money to be able to afford to really launch like ourselves? Like none of us come from money, like Chris said. So, you know, and none of us want to be financially like off kilter because we want to be healthy to be able to actually start a business over time. So if, if one of us goes down and we rely on each other so much. I mean, those are real implications <laughs> of, you know, real financial implications, personal financial health. But the personal financial health is going to affect our collective financial health working together. 
it's really difficult even just to live comfortably as an architect for I would say like the first 10 years you're practicing maybe and then you start getting some at least the people I know like you're not really able to be that financially lucrative till like a decade after you've started and you're supposed to just kind of grind away I mean it's difficult we even briefly considered alternative funding options the beginning you know as as far as looking into getting loans or financing it in other means, you know, or maybe a, a rich family member. It was, we had all kind of talked about it and put it on the list, but it, it's, again, it went back to kind of reassessing what, what do we really need? We did that triage of what do we need for the office to actually operate? And, you know, we cut it down. We did a we leveraged a lot of free software, a million to-do lists, Excel sheets. I think we did a lot of it on our own. So I think we, didn't want to start off with that debt when we were unsure, you know, where, where we were going at that point. So it, I don't know if we ever really took it seriously to get a loan. The one good thing about student loans is we learned the lesson about loans and that's never borrow money from somebody else. I, I think we did, you know, read that on a list, like Jeff said, and, and never even considered it that we don't want to owe people or have people have ownership in our business in any way. We want to maintain the ownership. I don't know. I wouldn't totally, maybe this is a discussion we need to have. I wouldn't totally write it off. Like if, if there does come a point where, you know, maybe we do want to do a little bit of self-funding on our own house or something, if we get to that point, you know, maybe we'll consider it. But, you know, like I, I would echo what Chris said is nobody, none of us want to be like owing a ton of money right. <laughs> to something else and having that hanging around our head on at the same time of trying to start a business. So unless at some point there is like a specific thing that's going to forward what we're doing, I think it's off the table. But th these are discussions we have, like we'll probably continue to have. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that comes to mind is Patrick McLaney and the, and the other Gable podcast talked about being friendly with their banker and how when times are tough in order to make payroll, they had to take out loans and have a good relationship with the bank. So mm. I think that is a lesson that we'll learn as business owners going forward. But it's definitely we don't want to start off in the hole. With the limited funds that we had from our own personal contributions, we decided to open a business bank account to operate from. You know, ideally, we sort of didn't want to be banking with big banking corporations. But in the end, being bi-coastal and remote, it seemed like the best option. So we did a bunch of research for different types of banks, newer banks, old established ones. Credit unions. Credit unions, yeah. Just ethically, we wanted to do a community bank. And we spent a good amount of time researching that. Unfortunately, there's not a ton. We, we had reached out to one in Brooklyn multiple times and they never got back to us. So if you're listening, <laughs> you know, work on your business skills because you lost an account. And then, as Lexi said, just being bi-coastal, we needed something that everybody could access. Lexi, I know you had originally also looked at online only. Yeah. I think it's just that they didn't have, it was more about like, we were worried like, well, if we can't get a hold of anybody, because I remember looking into that and then trying to like communicate with them. And we were, I was personally just worried, like, I'd like to at least in the event of something bad happening 
you can actually get a hold of someone and talk to them. And I remember trying to call them several times and like you couldn't get a hold of anybody. And so then like on top of being or even messaging them and like they weren't getting back to us. And I was like, well, if we're going to put money in this, like how are we, what if something goes awry and you can't, so it just, it seemed like really great from the jump. Like, oh, everything's online. They use other people's like ATMs as your ATMs. Like they have deals so that you can use those like freely. But then, yeah, if you can't actually access anyone behind those institutions and you need help with something, you know, at least it's not my preference, maybe personally to be at a big bank, just as a fundamental kind of thing. Maybe that's abnormal. I don't know. But, (laughs) you know, at least there's a brick and mortar that like Jeff and Chris have gone into maybe a couple of times now for like very particular reasons, but there's somebody there to talk to. And so that's a benefit of those, you know, long running kind of institutional companies. But we settled on one, I think it's just, is it, it's just Chase. It's sad that I don't even know. It's just Chase, but they had like a, also a, you know, start now and you get a little extra bonus for starting a business account. So, you know, we looked at the pros and cons of like how much we need to maintain in that account, how many cards we could have, what can be taken out at certain times. So we did a lot of research behind that and then sort of just decided on one and went for it. But it's the same thing. Maybe I'll echo like some of the, you know, Chris is the only registered person at this time. And so he's the one linked to that account also for the same, you know, he's the owner of the business. So until me and Jeff are licensed and can be, can be partner, true partners in that sense, like we don't really, we can use the account and we have started to for certain small things as a collective, but like Chris is the only card holder, for example. So, you know, the longer that takes, the more implications that has to other aspects of the business like banking. There's a few other like technical things on there. I think right off the bat, one of the first things we wanted to do was open a bank account, but we needed to have the business registered in order to get an EIN and then like all all these like legal intertwined things. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. And so for me, the the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. 
Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success. An EIN, or Employer Identification Number, also known as a Federal Tax Identification Number, and is used to identify a business entity for tax purposes. Generally, businesses need an EIN. For example, here are a few of the more common scenarios that, as of this recording, per the IRS's website, irs.gov, you will need an EIN if you answer yes to any of the following questions. Do you have employees? Do you operate your business as a corporation or a partnership? Do you file any of these tax returns, employment, excise, or alcohol? tobacco and firearms? Do you withhold taxes on income other than wages paid to a non-resident alien? You can apply for an EIN online through the IRS. Visit irs.gov for more information. So after filing for and obtaining an EIN, we were off to Chase to open an account. Waiting patiently in the lobby, we were finally called up to account services to find that this routine process would not be without its challenges. I think the guy we ended up with, uh, he was it was his first business account he'd ever opened. So the three of us were just, what are we doing? And I think it ended up taking like, what, three hours? Yeah, it was supposed to be a 45-minute appointment, and I think it took half a day. And, and at the end, we kept, I mean, the reason we did it is because they were doing a promo for... 300 bucks if you open your account with them and we kept asking him and he's like yeah yeah we'll get we'll get there we'll get there we'll get there three hours later jeff and i leave the bank and we're like we forgot to ask (laughs) (laughs) so i had to call him back that afternoon and be like we never talked about that money and then he had to do all this research thank god we we weren't still there while he did the research on that one we got our 300 bucks but yeah (laughs) as i noted in the beginning of the episode Understanding your operating costs and their relationship to other aspects of the business will help you run your business more effectively. To better understand the building blocks of a financially healthy company, we spoke with Megan Dale, financial strategist and virtual CFO. Megan helps interior designers and architects become great business owners. After sharing our situation, Megan's analysis and feedback is like a beacon of clarity for us. You guys have an ecosystem in your business, whether whether you have revenue or not, right? There are growth issues and there are profit issues. And the, the paradox is that your growth systems need profit in order to function and your profit systems need growth systems in order to function. And luckily you are at the beginning. And so I want to give you like a framework that you can use as your touchstone, not as an income statement, not as a balance sheet, not even as a number. I just want these touchstones for you so that you can assess where are we at and what should we be working on and how do these different things influence each other. So all of the questions I was asking you today were around four things, two of them being growth issues and two of them being profit issues. And the growth issues are marketing and sales, right? Like you got to go tell your message to the world. You got to tell people what you stand for and invite people to raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm interested in more information. And then eventually get them through the sales cycle of, yeah, here, take my money. That puts you into the profit side of, okay, we need to produce what we promised for them. And so step one is like delivery of the thing that you said that you do. And the second part is the stewardship 
of the resources of the value that you created for that client, the resources that you created for for the business in what you're going to do with them. Part of them being getting you through the next growth cycle, right? The tough spot is that this is all going on at the same time, right? So in my mind, what I'm building is a, a cash calendar for you, right? And it, and it doesn't include just cash. So it's a little bit of a misnomer. It's also, a, I want the calendar to insinuate time. When people say budgets, it's like this document that gets made that, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, that gives me a little bit of comfort. They put it in a drawer and they shut it only to bring it out when there's a problem. Like, oh, how did we get off track? No, like a cash calendar is more like a, the calendar that you look at every day. How are we doing on hours that we're working? How are we doing on the, the jobs that are coming in or not coming in? When's the money coming in and when is the money going out? What is our bank balance going to be? So looking at this cycle of growth, I have a picture in my head and it's hard to do audibly because I have a picture. So I want you to just picture a circle with a line straight down the middle of it. And on the left-hand side is the growth side split in half between marketing at the bottom, going up to the, the sales part on the top. And then on the other side of that circle, we're going to start coming down that side of the circle with the delivery and then the stewardship. But the thing is, is that each one of these numbers has their own math that goes along with it. In the marketing, it matters about your audience. It matters the size of your audience. It matters who is hearing you and are they hearing the right thing, what you want them to hear and getting that feedback of, oh, they are hearing what I want to hear, but they're still not raising their hand. So either I'm talking to the wrong people or my message is just off, like nobody wants it, right? And then in that sales part, how are we able to convert those people into actually paying for us, paying for our services? And so that math piece is pretty easy. How many people hear us times, you know, the percentage of people who are actually paying us is going to be our sales. So if we were to take that circle and like kind of open it up straight down the middle and flatten it out, we have four numbers that we're going to look at. The first one is our audience. We just want to know what our audience. So just picture that like as if it was on a bar graph, the tallest bar on the left hand side that's like these are the people that we're talking to are they hearing us and we're going to measure your time that you're spending in there as well that second number is straight up sales like like i'll write off the income statement what is your revenue during the period so we know how many of these people in your audience are becoming the second stick the second bar in the graph that are your sales okay great that's our growth side but then what do we do with it? Now, the money is made over here on the profit side where the first number that we're going to have for the next one in this bar graph is going to be your capacity. How much room do you have to be making revenue anyway? Prior to speaking with Megan, our plan to transition from employee to business owner was to make enough as a business to pay one person's full salary at roughly 100000 as quickly as possible. That person would then peel off to focus on level full-time to grow the company enough to cover the next person's salary until we were all full-time. To Megan's note about our current capacity, we anticipated that we could each realistically put in 20 hours per week to level while still being full-time employees elsewhere. The weird thing is, is that this number is not tied to your sales in any way, shape, or form. This number is, is extracted by the amount of time that you have to be working in your business and whether you track it by flat fee or hourly fee, you have a certain capacity. And so your capacity calculated at 20 hours a week at 70% billable, like 70% of those 20 hours, you're going to be working on client work, 
times the three of you times four weeks a month. That's 168 billable hours. And if we were going to bill 168 billable hours per month at a rate of, let's say, 150, to be conservative, don't bill 150. You're worth more than that. That's $25,000 a month in revenue. Okay. And if we take that times 12 months, that's $300,000 times 50% is what you would get to like put in your pocket as owners. That's $150,000 a year for the three of you to split as a salary. So if you can fill your capacity, if you can get that, that sales to match the capacity line, you don't necessarily have to leave your jobs before your sales are filling up your capacity. And the last number over here on the profit side is going to be that stewardship number, which is actually your break-even point. Beautifully, because you don't have the albatross of an office hanging around your neck. You don't have the albatross of, of staff hanging around your neck. You have software, insurance. There's going to be some marketing costs in there, that type of thing. All of which we can put on a cash calendar and map out when is that going to be spent versus when is there more coming, money coming in. And as long as that number for that break-even point is staying low under your sales number far enough that we're leaving enough in there to pay your salaries, we're good. We're good. But it's a matter of what strings do we pull in what order? Because if you pull a string on a sales, you're going to pull a string on the, on the break-even point as well. So each decision can look at this four-bar graph and go, okay, we need to decrease our capacity, especially if you're paying for employees. Because it's, it's, it's making our break-even point go way too high and our sales just can't support it. But in your case, we don't have any sales yet. We don't really even have a break-even point yet. But we have a lot of capacity and a lot of room for growth. So we want to be really good stewards of the resources that you have. Of. So in my mind, right now, your main focus is one, and this will always be my main focus for service-based businesses, track your time. Whether you are working on a marketing thing, whether you are just sending emails, whether you are out networking, whether you are installing software on your new computers, track your time because we are going to want to make sure that our assumption of that 70% billable is, is right on. And that's also going to be becoming very valuable when you get a project and you guys are estimating, well, we think this feasibility study is going to take us 20 hours, 20 hours. So we're going to do a flat fee and just experiment. Or we think it's going to be 20 hours and we're going to do the $150 an hour and, and see if that works out. So it's all data that we want to collect. We all we want to keep our tabs on that capacity number if, if we were right on that or if there's something that needs to adjust. But right now, and this is the accountant saying it, like growth is your game. Like Martin, you know this. Marketing is your game, going out and getting the thing. And the fastest way is going to be continuing to build those relationships. This was a revelation for us, and there was a newfound optimism that we can make this work. Megan also provided some additional insight around compensation. I'm not a lawyer, not a lawyer, so I'm not going to touch on the legality portion of it, but I'm going to give you a recommendation to go read Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. And whether you are the legal owner or the three of you are become the legal owners together, it doesn't matter how you treat the agreement as to how you get paid, right? Not the legal agreement, just the agreement among the three of you. And what Mike is going to tell you in that book is, first of all, you get paid for the work that you do inside the business, and then you get the reward for being an owner in the business as well. 
So I would have a separate system for the like, Chris, you worked actually eight hours this week. And Jeff, you worked 30 hours this week. And Lexi maybe worked 10. So we have a rate of what we pay each other based on the amount of work that we do. But then we get to share in the reward, the profit portion of the business under a separate type of agreement. So while I say, yeah, go ahead and pay yourself, you know, this $50,000 a year. What I really mean is who did the work? Make sure that they're being fairly compensated. So that decreases the probability of you guys getting any animosity about who's taking on the workload, whether it's growth workload or production workload, it doesn't matter. Both need to be compensated. And then you have a separate agreement as to, okay, we're through a partners. We should share in the the profit equitably there as well. Or you could decide that you share in that as a portion of ours as well. That's up to you. But it's definitely a discussion that needs to be out in the open. Megan really illuminated a clear path forward for us. She also shared some parting advice that resonated deeply. What is the change that you want for your clients, right? Like whether whether I'm talking to somebody who's running a cafe or architects, like what is that change? Is it the f- quiet five minutes that they get in the middle of their day to just relax? For an architect, is it walking into a space that's just like, ha, ah, that just feels like a sigh of relief? Or is it a walking to, into a space that's like, these people are serious or what is it? What is that, that change that has that heart, that feeling to it. And the second piece of advice is like, don't be shamed about not knowing your numbers because there are really only four vital numbers that you need to know. And your your accountant's not going to tell you this. Okay. (laughs) It's going to be your audience in relationship to your sales, in relationship to your capacity, in relationship to your break-even point. And if you can just draw it on a piece of paper with markers, four different colored markers, and look at like, oh, our capacity is way too high. Or, oh, yeah, we are not converting nearly enough of our of our marketing. We got to do something else for sales. That way there's no judgment in it. It's objective. And you don't have to go sifting through a bunch of spreadsheets to figure that out. Before we wrap up, I wanted to give a special thank you to Megan Dolly. If you found her insights helpful and you want to speak with her in greater detail about your specific situation, I encourage you to visit megandolly.com for more information. Megan also shared the Vital Four freebie with us, which we've linked to in our show notes. Now that we have a better understanding of the building blocks for a financially healthy company, it's time to get to work. And I can't wait to share what we've been up to next time on Emerging. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this. I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Thanks for listening. Emerging is a Gable Media podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend and rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really helps. And if you're looking for similar content, you can find even more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And before we go, If you want to jump ahead and find out more about us and our practice, you can visit us at lvl.studio. From historic homes to modern architecture, brick is one of the most popular building materials around the world. How to allow the house to bridge the gap between the history of the site 
the approachability of this kind of architecture in this kind of neighborhood and the sort of nostalgia of materiality for, for the client's past, right? And, and Brick really started to provide an answer for that. Hi, I'm Doug Pat, and this is Design Vault. There aren't many materials that easily blend with any style and context, but Brick does just that. I've seen some extraordinary work with Brick, so when Glenn Gary approached me about hosting this podcast, I couldn't say no. Typically, Tudor-style houses from outside are just stunningly gorgeous piece of structure. And when you go in, it's just sad, yeah, dark. And that is not going to happen with my approach to design. I speak with industry leaders and share inspiring stories behind their work and ingenious design. You'll see brick that's fashioned into basket weave patterns, sawtooth patterns, what's known in England as diapering. Doesn't sound like you knew them per se, right? They found you through relationships that you had with other. Well, wait, Doug, there's more. Okay. <laughs> we'll go behind the scenes to understand process and even the inspiration that sparked the design. You know, I think we were inspired by all the factory buildings in, in Dumbo. I mean, that is the kind of period of significance, that early American factory building. Design Vault by Glenn Gary. Visit glengarry.com forward slash design dash vault or search for Design Vault wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now to stretch your imagination.